0: hope you enjoy this week's talk from the evening service. Thank you for joining us today. Grace and peace to you.
1: This evening's reading is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20 perfect cool here's the image of the invisible god the first born over all creation for by him all things were created things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities all things were created by him and for him
0: Thank you, Zanfì, and I'm sorry the slide was wrong. That, I think, is an error on my part earlier in the week. And good evening, everybody. At the end of last month, my wife and I marked uh, 50 years since we first moved to Croydon. We uh, had been married a couple of months. I was about to become a law student, And she got a job in Pearlie, so it seemed sensible to move to this side of the river. And we didn't for a moment expect that we would still be here half a century later. But we are. And I've been reflecting recently on how the world has changed in those 50 years. And I'd like to mention briefly four ways in which it seems to have changed hugely. The first is the increase in the population of the world. The human population has more than doubled since we got married in 1972. It was 3.85 billion then. In July of this year, it had risen to 7.8 billion. I looked it up at around 50 years on. And it's now nearly 8 billion from, as you can see from the figure on the screen. And that means that the worldwide demand for food, water, homes, energy, healthcare, education, transport, and other resources has more than doubled and is continuing to increase at an alarming rate. In contrast with that, the wildlife population of the world has declined by over two-thirds. Just last week, the Worldwide Fund for Nature published its Living Planet Report, written by 89 of the world's leading scientists. And they report that the worldwide population of wildlife species, and that means mammals, birds, fish amphibians and reptiles so we're not talking about insects and so on at this point the worldwide population fell on average by 69 percent between 1970 and 2018 that's a 48 year period but it's close enough and that's the worldwide average in South America where the rate of deforestation in the Amazon is still increasing, there was a 94% drop in the wildlife population. And this is almost entirely due to human activity. Stripping the land of trees and hedges and destroying the habitat of many species is causing this decline. Just alongside that, Uh, The RSPB uh, issued a report um, last November, so it's nearly a year old, that stated that the bird population of the European Union and the UK had fallen by 600 million breeding birds since 1980. A reduction of about 18%, not as bad as wildlife generally, but a huge reduction and anna staniva the interim head of conservation of birdlife europe said this common birds are becoming less and less common largely because the spaces they depend on are being wiped out by humans the third thing i'd like us to have in mind is the effect of of those 50 years on the climate and pollution. In 1972, we had never heard either of global warming, warming, I should say, although warning is an appropriate um, word as well, global warming or climate change. Not even David Attenborough and the forward-thinking Prince Charles were using those expressions. We were completely unaware that our use of fossil fuels was rapidly raising the global temperature and making parts of the world uninhabitable. The most important issue we face today is not the cost of energy, although that is very serious and urgent, but the source of energy. We know now, and we have known for decades, that the continued use of fossil fuels at present levels is causing irreversible harm to this planet. And if you have any doubt about that at all, go to the BBC iPlayer and watch the last episode of Frozen Planet 2, which was screened last Sunday evening and I think repeated this afternoon, so you've just missed it on, on TV, but you can get it on iPlayer. In 1972, we had wonderful new materials we called plastic, and they were revolutionizing the manufacturing industry. We were not aware just how harmful those materials would be when they found their way into the environment and what harm they would do to the creatures of the natural world. The chief executive of WWF, Tanya Steele, the UK chief executive, has said this about the twin crises of climate and nature. Despite the science, the catastrophic projections, the impassioned speeches and promises, the burning forests, submerged countries, record temperatures and displaced millions, world leaders continue to sit back and watch our world burn in front of our eyes. And she continued, the climate and nature crises, their fates entwined, are not some faraway threat our grandchildren will solve with still-to-be-discovered technology. My generation has a lot to answer for to my grandchildren's generation and the problems they will face. Sir David Attenborough was presented with a special award at the World Economic Forum in Davos in 2019. And in response to that award, he said this, We have changed the world so much that scientists say we are now in a new geological age, the Anthropocene, the age of humans. And in response to the Living Planet report the one that I mentioned was published last week, he tweeted, the hashtag Anthropocene could be the moment we become stewards of our planet. Which is insightful, given that he is an agnostic. Because stewards is what God intended us to be from the time we were created. And his tweet continued, above all, It requires a change in perspective to view nature as the single greatest ally in restoring balance to our world. And the fourth big change is communications. In 1972, some offices had these new things called computers. They were huge. They were housed in a special room. The idea of a a separate computer for each worker on their own desk was barely thinkable, still less the idea of us having a personal computer in our own home. And the idea of a powerful computer that we could carry around in our pocket was not even dreamed of. In science fiction films, we would see people making telephone calls where they could actually see the person at the other end of the call. We never imagined for a moment that we would ever be able to do that. For those of you who were born after about, say, 1980, you may be interested to know that in 1972, radio stations didn't play all through the night. TV stations didn't even broadcast all day. All day TV was still 14 years away. There was no 24-hour news channel. And now, I get a beep on my phone every time the BBC thinks there's breaking news that I might be interested in. And in the past week, that has been pretty frequent In 50 years, we have become what is proverbially called a global village because we know instantly, if we choose to be informed, what is happening all over the world. With all those changes in mind then, let us turn to what the Bible has to say about creation and our place in it. Let's start not with the passage that Xanthi read, but the first Genesis account of the creation of the human race. You may well be familiar with this sentence Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And the writer proceeds to describe God creating humankind. In a chapter that opens with the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, the writer of Genesis, this part of Genesis, has insight into into creation as an activity, not just of the Father, but of the Holy Trinity. And in our reading, the one that Xanthi read to us, Paul expands on that. Writing about Christ, he gives us the, in, in, uh, gives to the Colossians and through them to us, an intimate insight into what took place in creation. In him, in Christ, all things were created. All things have been created by him, or through him, and for him. Or, in other words, God loved his son so much that he made the world for him and he did the creative activity with him. To me, that is a beautiful picture and it brings to mind my father-in-law. He took up art when he was forced to retire from gardening after an accident in which he fell out of a tree. He was, uh, as I say, he took up art, and he was allowed to paint in a shed outside the council flat where he and his wife lived. He was also good at carpentry, and many wooden works of craftsmanship emerged from that shed over the years, including in 1974 a cradle made from one of the pews taken out of the church where we'd been married. All his subsequent grandchildren and most of his great-grandchildren slept, when tiny, in that crib. But I have a particular memory of him uh, over 40 years ago now on the occasion of a family gathering in that flat taking his grandson, John, my wife's nephew who must have been about six at the time into his shed. Everyone else continued with the family gathering, but John went with Grandad to the shed. They worked together with some off-cut pieces of wood that he had. And John emerged later with a boat that he was going to take home and float in his bath. And he was delighted with it because he had made it with his Grandad. It gave them both great pleasure to work together in a creative activity. And it seems to me that the thought behind what Paul wrote is similar. He gives us the image of father and son working together to create something beautiful and pleasing. We call it the universe. God loved his son so much that he made the world with him and for him. And the passage that we read uh, concludes that the cross achieved not only reconciliation between God and humankind, but also reconciliation of all things to God, all things whether on earth or in heaven. Reconciled to God through the blood of Christ shed on the cross. It's not only human beings who need to be reconciled to God. Redemption embraces the whole of creation. If we had read a little further, we would have heard Paul state in verse 23 that the gospel was not just for the human race, but for every creature under heaven. In another letter, the one to the Romans, Paul wrote of the Christian hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. That's about something far bigger than a ticket to heaven for you and me. It's about putting right everything that is wrong, both in human society and in the natural world, restoring the broken relationship between God and his creation, including, but not limited to, humankind. The church often gives the impression that all that matters is introducing people to Christ and enabling them to experience the salvation that is offered through him. Now, of course, I'm entirely for that, but the two passages I've just mentioned urge us to expand our vision Of redemption. They remind us that God's relationship with the whole of creation is equally important and is redeemed through Christ's self giving love seen on the cross. Therefore, it's important for us to think not only about our relationship with God, but also our relationship with the world that God created, the world that God loved so much that he sent his only son into the world to redeem it. If God the Father lovingly made the world with Jesus and for Jesus, as Paul says, what does that say to us about how we should treat what he created? it reinforces the message that we find in the two Genesis accounts of creation, in each of which humans are given responsibility for the natural world. In the second account, in chapter 2, the tale of a garden, God places the first man in a garden and gives him a purpose to work it and take care of it. And the next thing God does is to create the first woman, presumably to instruct the man what to do in the garden. And that's more serious than it sounds. It was actually meant to be a joke, but it's actually more serious than it sounds. The Old Testament, in my experience, is that I need a woman to tell me what to do in the garden. But the Old Testament tells us that God created the woman as a helper suitable for him, and The Hebrew word that is translated helper doesn't mean a sidekick. Two psalmists use the same word to describe God himself when they say, he is my helper. So the helper may describe the one who is in charge just as much as someone who is just an assistant. As when my father-in-law helped John to make his boat. The Bible is clear that the relationship of humans to everything else that God created is one of stewardship. We are caretakers or park keepers of creation. God has made us responsible for the well-being of the natural world. So with that in mind, we need to ask, what right have we to deforest vast landscapes for economic gain? What right have we to destroy the habitats of other species? What right have we to pollute rivers and oceans with our industry? What right have we to farm the land or the oceans so intensively that they become barren? And the answer to each of those questions, of course, is none at all. We are stewards of this planet, not the owners. We have no more right to damage it than the park keeper has to trash the park. No more right to destroy our environment and the habitats of other species than the caretaker has to burn down the building. Now, you may be thinking, but I've never done any of those things. I've never cut down a tree, let alone destroy a forest. I don't destroy habitats. I've not polluted a river, and I'm not a farmer or a fisherman. And this is where what we buy, or how we invest our pensions, matters so much. It's demand for beef and palm oil products and the like that lead to deforestation in places like the Amazon, to take just one example. We need to use our purchasing power and our investing power sustainably. We need to buy less stuff and learn to be content with what we have, as we were reminded in the sermon this morning by a speaker from Arosha. And that is countercultural in a world where not just our government, but almost every government is obsessed with economic growth. John will be reminding us shortly of a few practical things that we can all do but we need to pray also for the world's leaders to take these issues seriously and to place them at the top of the agenda. Let me end with a personal uh, experience, and I do so with apologies to those who've heard me share this before, um, back in March 2020, in the last uh, a week before the country locked down in the first COVID lockdown. Uh, it was at an evening service here, but I guess there are quite a few people who are new to Emmanuel since then. And even if you weren't, you probably won't remember it, so I'll say it again. It goes back uh, nearly 30 years to the early 1990s. My wife and I were invited to lead a church weekend away, For another church. And our theme was intended to encourage the church to take seriously what was then referred to as the green issue. It was at a time when secular society was waking up to the importance of the environment, and the church, as it so often does, was lagging behind. And on the Saturday morning of that weekend, we did an interesting exercise that I've never forgotten, we divided the people into groups of three and sat each group at a separate table. And on each table, we provided a lump of clay, some dried flowers and oasis, and pencils and paper. And in each group, we said one, one of the three was to make a sculpture with the clay, one was to make a dried flower arrangement, and the third was to produce a drawing. They spent half the morning producing some really good work. There was a real buzz in the room, and when we paused for coffee, many of them were really excited and surprised by their own newly discovered creativity. Then came the second part of the exercise. After the break, we told them to return to their tables and that in each group... The person who made the sculpture had to spoil the flower arrangement the flower arranger had to spoil the drawing and the artist had to spoil the sculpture our purpose was then to go on to explore their feelings as they saw something that something beautiful that they had created being damaged or even destroyed By someone else. We expected it to be an effective way of beginning to understand how God feels about the way we humans mistreat this planet. One thing we didn't anticipate, and perhaps in retrospect we should have anticipated it, uh, was the reluctance of the participants to damage one another's creations the sculptors would slightly dislodge just one of the dried flowers. The flower arrangers would smudge the pencil in an insignificant corner of the drawing. The artists would make a a slight scratch or dent in the sculpture. No one was willing to do irreparable harm to the work of someone whom they knew and loved and who was there beside them, let alone to destroy it. It took a long time to persuade them to do as we asked, and even then it was really rather a token gesture. And so the exercise didn't only teach us in some small way to understand how God feels about the way we treat his creation, it raised a deeper question, one that we had not expected. If we really know and love God, and we believe that God has invested himself in the world he created, why are we so willing to continue to live in ways that we now know are harming and destroying it? Why are we not much more eager than we appear to be to make changes to our lifestyle to protect and preserve it. If the world was made by Jesus and for Jesus, then we we as people who love Jesus have more reason than anyone to care for this planet and to do everything in our power to protect it and look after it. For the simple reason that the entire planet was made by him and for him. Let's pause for a moment to reflect as the band comes up to lead us in worship. Thanks for listening to the Emmanuel Croydon Podcast. For more information about our church and everything we have going on, visit our website